Well, good morning. We are continuing in the study through the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans. If you would turn there, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It can be found on your pew Bibles on page 942. And as you turn, uh, I'd like to uh, borrow a phrase from our senior pastor and, uh, and speak to our little theologians. And maybe I'll um, clarify that and say to, to the littlest of our little theologians, our little sheep in our midst. Have you ever lost something that you love and have been terribly sad that you couldn't find it? Maybe it was a toy or a picture that you drew, maybe a, a favorite shirt or a favorite book. Well, a little while ago, one of my little sheep, my three-year-old Elizabeth, lost her pacifier, her passy. It was something extremely special to her. And while mommy and daddy were hoping it was about time that Passy could go on a permanent trip, uh, it was so precious to our little sheep, Elizabeth, that she searched everywhere for it. She looked under the bed, she searched the piles of dirty clothes, everything she could do to find her lost Passy. And after three days of sad tears and tireless searching, she finally found it and was so happy. And nobody was gonna pry that passy out of that three-year-old's hands. Have you ever lost something and then been so excited to find it? Well, if you understand that feeling, you understand the character and the love of our God who does great things for those who are lost, who seeks to give life to those who are in darkness. This passage I'm about to read to us is the Apostle Paul writing beautiful good news of God and his love that restores what was lost. Let me read it to us. Please follow along. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift was not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Our gracious heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your steadfast love to us. Love that we do not deserve. Love that pursues us with a zeal at great cost. Oh Lord, your grace and mercy toward us are beyond anything we will find in your creation. For you define and teach us what love is. Oh Lord, we ask now that you would teach and grow us as your people. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, have you ever considered how one man's actions can affect others? If you're a sports fan, you may know this pretty well. Pretty well. Uh, especially if you are a NFL football fan, especially if you are a Chicago Bears fan. If you're a Bears fan, you might have been ex excited this past uh, season of how well they were doing. It was their first winning season since 2012. They had defeated their rivals, the Green Bay Packers, and they had entered into their first playoff division since 2010. Uh, their first game of the playoffs was against the Philadelphia Eagles, and they were by far uh, the favorites. In fact, commentators were saying that it'd be uncharacteristically poor uh, if, they want, if they lost this game. They'd have to play uncharacteristically poor to lose this game. Well, as the game went on towards the end, the Eagles were up 16 to 15. And the Bears had one last opportunity. They had the ball, they had it on the 43-yard line. There were 10 seconds left in the game and the coach sent out their field goal kicker. 43 yards, this kicker comes out to make this attempt. All eyes are on him in this one moment. The Bears' hope of making it to the next game, to hopefully to the Super Bowl, they came down to this one moment. Every sideline player had their eyes on this kicker and his foot. Every staff member, every spouse and child whose livelihood was dependent upon their team's success. Astronomical player bonuses, unbelievable financial endorsements, every Bear fans bragging rights and celebratory dreams in this one moment. Even the city of Chicago gets a renewed exposure to tourism. Destination branding is what they call it. Morale, general happiness of the city is seen from winning teams of the Super Bowl. Everything came down to this one kick and as the kick was taken, 
It barely touched an eagle's defensive back finger, hit the uprights, bounced off the crossbeams, and didn't go over. He lost the game in one kick. One commentator was writing that if the kicker had made the field goal, he would have been a hero. But instead, fans will certainly harass him and his family. He might even need to hire private security. An entire team, an entire fan base, an entire city, all impacted by one man's single action in that moment. Now I realize that this is a bit of a lighthearted example, except maybe if you're a Bears fan. But my point is that there's profound implications from something that seemed like such a small thing. Now those of you who are well versed in the Bible know exactly where I'm going with this. You know what Paul's argument is in this beautiful passage. You know that, that there are not just far implications for a kicker into the city of Chicago. There's far reaching effects in one man's actions in our first parent, in the historical Adam. And Paul is telling us that, that all of human history hinges on two men's actions. The actions of our first parent, the first Adam, which brought complete ruin in our world. And it's only through the lens of that ruin that we can understand the complete work of renewal and love that comes to us through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of human history revolves around these two individuals. Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus. That's the outline we're gonna be using this morning. Just two points. The first Adam who brought a reign of sin that leads to death. And the second Adam who brings a reign of grace that leads to life. Let's look at that first point. The first Adam who brought a reign of sin that leads to death. Now, it's sad, but we don't have to go very far to prove that there's a reign of sin and death in our world today. If you're able to hear General B.B. Bell's talk at the men's breakfast, you won't be surprised with how close we are to a world at war. Just pick up any newspaper. You see the reign of sin in our world. And Paul explains in our op opening verse, in this verse 12, the cosmic implications of what, what, what our first parent did. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin, all that which is wrong with the world, has an origin. It didn't begin with God or his good creation. It began with the one who was made to reflect him in the world. Paul reaches back to the beginning. Genesis 1 and 3 affirms a historical Adam. He reminds us that he was our first parent, that he represented all of humanity in his disobedience to God. But Adam's sin didn't remove God's love, it removed our humanity. 
It disrupted a perfect, loving relationship that satisfied our lives. Because God is the source of what life is. Instead, life was replaced with death. That's what Paul says here. Sin leads to death. And if we think about what death is, death is a tangible, visible picture of sin. You see, the results of sin is that it separates us from one another. We live with fissures of brokenness between us in our hearts, in our identities, in our families, of the ones whom we should love the most. They cause us the greatest harm and the greatest of separations between us and our Heavenly Father. And this is what death is. Death separates us. It separates us from communities. How many of us here are longing today to be with one who's gone before us. And yes, there's grace and death for God's people, but it separates us from those who we love, and it separates us from our bodies. In a sense, God illustrates our ruined estate through death. And it's amazing how instantly it happens for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sought to hide themselves by covering themselves up with fig leaves. Do you remember, do you remember it's the exact same verse, verse seven of chapter three of Genesis? In the same verse, they have both their eyes open and their bodies covered. It's as if they have no pause to reflect on what's just happened. No way of processing or no great aha moment. There's nothing positive for them. They immediately know that they cannot treat each other the same way that they had before. They lost their freedom to be open. They lost their ability to discern truly what is actually right and good and true in the world. And they could no longer allow the light of the world to shine on them directly. They had to cover themselves with a poor attempt at a cover. And so we too, as God's people, who were made in his image, became radically lost and separated from the light of the world. Living in darkness without realizing what light is, unable to discern what true goodness, what righteousness looks like anymore. Our entire outlook on life is distorted, Paul tells us, by a reign of sin and death. John Calvin put it this way, our eyes everywhere they turn encounter the curse. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 13, look with me. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now Paul is not saying here that sin didn't count, it, it didn't have any effects until the coming of the law. Sin still produced a reign of death in the world. We see this in verse 14. But he's saying that sin's record couldn't be known. It couldn't be known until we knew what was right and wrong in the world, until we had the law to tell us, to define sin. We couldn't know even what's right and wrong. Remember, that's what Satan had promised. You'll know and discern what's good from evil. 
Adam and Eve had no knowledge of that beyond the single commandment that God had given them in the garden. I believe that's what Paul is talking about here in 14 when he says, even those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, Adam knew what the sin was and that sin represented all of humanity. And death did reign. Death reigned before Moses. It reigned before the giving of the law. And in verse 19, Paul says something even deeper. Paul explains that we were all made sinners, not by our own decision to sin, although we do. Paul says that in 12, because all have sinned. But that we've inherited a nature that makes us sinners. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Our identity was defined by Adam and death continued and spread because of our continued sins. We're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And yet, while we are part of the problem in the spreading of death, the law comes to tell us the depth of our sin. The law reveals to us what is right and wrong, and so in a sense, sin increases. We now know what is wrong, and yet we do it anyways. I believe this is what Paul's talking about in this reign of sin and death. It's not that the law is bad or, or that the law does something wrong to us. It points out even further how dark our darkness is. The gravity of our sins our inability to understand, and when we even do understand, our inability to keep what is good and right and righteous in the world. You know who's figured this out better than probably most? Now, I'm gonna say this in some jest, but Aldi, the grocery store. Now, I love Aldi. We, 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 we lived off of Aldi, especially in seminary, but Aldi figured something out. <laughs> Aldi figured out that left to our own devices, we will not return shopping carts back where they go. <laughs> so they require us, they actually, they, they incentivize us by, by forcing us to have a quarter in order to access a, a, a shopping cart, in order to put back the cart. We need a quarter in order to love Aldi well, our neighbors. It's incentivized love. We can't even see how we can love one another. Paul's saying that the reign of sin is so deep and great that it affects everything about us. And it's not just the outside world, it's inside, it's the fig leaves that we still try and hide ourselves in, cover ourselves up by. And it's the judgment it's the judgment that we're told brought condemnation through Adam's first transgression. Verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And what Paul's saying here is that the law, it can't undo God's judgment. It can't heal the loss of relationship. 
the loss of love, the loss of satisfaction that we once had from him, the condemnation of God through Adam's first sin, it produced a righteous wrath from our heavenly father. It created a torn separation, that's what sin does, that left a God-sized hole in our souls and longing for real life. A longing that we seek to fill with all sorts of unsatisfying, unreal, unlife-giving things, like our own work, like a relationship, like sometimes substances, like sometimes what we do to gain a greater sense of self-worth and value. And what we're longing for is this lost life that we once had in Adam because he sinned. And like an immovable pacifier in the hands of a three-year-old, we long to hold on to something to give us life even though it will never fill that relationship like God will. And so we hide ourselves and we put on fig leaves and we ignore the problem or we point our fingers at others. And we don't want others to know that we are ourselves lost. We protect our reputation at all costs, pretending we can be our own defender. We cover over our ignorance and, and always look to be right and never to be seen as wrong. We develop fears that we might look foolish before others. And we pretend to to have a life that is completely under our control, that no one will be the wiser by how we look, by how we act. And when we do become insecure in this longing of our lives, we often try to compare and contrast ourselves with others. Paul is telling us that whatever takes the form of our fig leaves whatever we're trying to cover ourselves up with, whatever we're protecting the longings of our hearts with, it's ultimately grounded in our relationship to our Heavenly Father because our connection was lost and we remain under his condemnation because of Adam's first sin. Friends, this is the most profound, catastrophic condition of each one of our lives. And it's the universal human condition for all who are in Adam. What this means is that if we're sitting here today thinking, if they only knew how bad my heart was, it means you're in good company. That's all of our condition in and of ourselves, apart from a new mediator. And that's why at the end of verse 14, Paul gives us hope. He says, Adam was one who is a type that was to come. Paul's talking about a type whose implications would have the same effect, but reversed in the world. In fact, a greater effect than Adam's. Because the second Adam would bring a reign of grace that would lead to life, that would permeate through every area that sin and death touch today. So as Adam came as one type, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes as the second Adam. We see it in verse 15. 
Paul clarifies that this one to come is him and that his work will change the, the rest of human history for his work is not like Adam's. Look with me in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The new Adam brings something different. He's not bringing sin and death any longer. He brings a free gift, grace. And note that the only way to obtain this grace is through the one man, Jesus Christ. This isn't some form of universalism that Paul is putting out there. It's a bold declaration that the only source can come from one place by being recipients of grace from Jesus Christ alone. It doesn't come by our, our, our ancestry. It doesn't come from Abraham's family. Like, like Paul makes the argument and Pastor Jones preached on in previous weeks, it's not found in our best works. It's not found in picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. It cannot be bought and it's not up to our church membership. And it's not up for, for some of you who hold on to a guilt and shame complex as if you could pay a penance for this gift. No, the only way to obtain this free gift is to receive it through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the source of grace in the world. He alone can bring the end of tyranny, of sin and death. Paul uses the phrase in verse 15, much more have the grace of God. Paul is saying that where everything that was impacted by sin and death, it's powerful and pervasive throughout every inch of our lives. It clouds our judgments. Now the effects of Jesus and the grace of God reverses that impact, that reign of sin. So much more. And it impacts us through Christ. What Paul is saying is similar to this. It's, it's easy to have a car become damaged or dent or broken. It's much harder and costly for it to be refixed and restored. Creation was so easily distorted. One, one theologian said it's easy to blot the picture. It's so much harder and costlier to undo the effects of sin throughout God's creation. That's what Paul is saying by the much more language, Jesus' work will be greater and so much deeper and vaster. And Paul continues to explain this in verse 17, that while death did reign through one man, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And in verse 19, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. New identity completely. In fact, if you were to take this passage, you'll see so many parallels that Paul's making. So many contrasts. So Paul's making it crystal clear that these two representatives are diametrically opposed in action, one in disobedience, one in complete obedience. 
want two completely different opposed results, one making men sinners, the other making them righteous. And what we're told by implication of what Paul's saying is that there's only two ways to be in this world. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There are no other options. So for those of us who are in Christ, what does Paul tell us? He tells us there's a new order upon his people. It reshapes our identities, changing us from sinners to made righteous. It's not a partial forgiveness, it's a complete restoration today. Complete justification. And a justification that leads to changing how we live in the world. A justification that overturns the reign of sin with a different reign, a reign of grace. And so Paul mentions and talks about how Christ's act of righteousness and his obedience, how it works and how it overcomes sin and it changes our lives so that we would live differently in the world that were pictures of grace today by the righteousness he has imputed upon us. And how does Christ do this? Well, in theological terms, there's three great imputations. There's our imputations, with which I talked about, of our sin upon Adam. And Paul talks about our righteousness from Christ being imputed upon us as God's people. And he mentions by Christ's obedience, but, but he doesn't give us a full picture. In fact, that's what, what John Harris read from Isaiah 53. It's the imputation of our sins upon Christ. Christ, who came into his world by his act of righteousness, by his complete obedience, he becomes the empty longing of sin and death. Christ bears the fullness of sin. He's ripped on the cross his, by, uh, in relationship to his heavenly Father by his complete obedience. In that moment, the Lord Jesus, the maker of the universe, was cut off. Out of the land of the living, John read to us earlier. He who by definition is life became something that he is by definition not, sin. So that we who were born by definition sinners, perpetuating sin and death in his good world, would become what he is, righteous. Christ goes at great lengths, a, per, a zeal to pursue those who are lost, he goes through grief and suffering. He goes through piles of dirty laundry, of dirt and pain. He endures the hostility. He dies on the cross. And for what? The joy that was set before him. For nothing other than his love for us. His love when we were the most unlovable in our identities. When our fig leaves were trying their best effort to cover us up. In our sinful actions and in our passive inaction, 
Christ died for us. This is grace. And Paul uses the special word in verse 20. He says, but where sin increased, grace hyperabounded. Now there's all this repetition that happens in the passage, but right here Paul changes the word. He increases the word, the intensity of the word. It, grace hyperabounded. Paul repeats this, this phrase and he adds to it to emphasize the transforming work that Christ does in our lives. That it's not just for a particular people, the Israelites, but that the reign of grace would extend to the Gentiles, that it would overflow from us into the lives of others, transforming us into a reflection of who he is and calling us to live under the law and empowering us, not just in our justification, but in our sanctifying work so that we would live by life, that we'd be satisfied with him and that we would be able to love and extend that grace to others. You see, for the ancient Roman listener, they're probably on some level hearing Paul clarify that there's no Jew and no Gentile in Christ. There are only those in Adam and those in Christ. And for us today, we hear something of the same. For there's no superiority for any of us who are in Christ. All are undeserving recipients of his work. Only in Christ can we find lasting unity then amongst one another because all of us are undeservingly justified and all of us he is transforming to have fullness of life and display that grace to one another. Being in Christ gives us life. It satisfies the longings. It enables us to push out everything else that we try to cover ourselves up with. For if Christ provides the grace, he provides the strength for us to endure. In 1722, there was a Christian man by the name of Nicholas Ludwig Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf was part of a family of feudal lords they had embraced Lutheranism pretty much at the start of the Reformation. There's a great deal that you can find and read about Zinzendorf. But in 1722, his faith in Christ compelled him to start offering refugees from persecuted wandering areas of the world to come and find refuge in his land. And he created a village for them. And during this time, those who were coming from different places, who were escaping uh, religious persecution, found themselves developing this community, a community that initially began as a place of religious freedom, and uh, many different groups started gathering, and it grew. And over time, these various conflicts emerged because of their differing beliefs. Many of them turned to a form of fanaticism. And even the leaders, the first ones whom Zinzendorf had offered this land to, began to turn their hearts away from Zinzendorf, seeing perhaps his wealth or perhaps his renown or whatever it might be as something wicked. To the degree that, that one of the starting leaders of this village would call Zinzendorf the beast 
that's referenced in the book of Revelation. Well, when Zinzendorf, who was in the German court, heard these claims, you know what he did? He went back to that area and he moved in to the village. And he asked to meet with each of the families in their home to pray with them. And he invited the men of the village to start a Bible study. And they spent copious amounts of time just praying. And through this prayer and the study of God's word, the community developed into an unwavering bond of love and unity. Here was a wealthy, powerful, influential leader, and he welcomed them into a place where they had no home, gave them a home, and he could have brought a, a, a huge army against them. He could have of defended himself or bribed them or manipulated them, but, but no, when attacked Zinzendorf, he didn't seek his own protection. He didn't seek to manipulate or buy out the town. He brought to them what he had received, the free gift of righteousness that brought a different kind of rain to this village. It was no longer a rain of division, of sin and death, of separation by religious fanaticism. It brought a rain of life through the righteousness of Christ. It was around that time Zinzendorf would compose a beautiful poem. It'll be a hymn that we sing in a moment. Listen to one of the stanzas of, his, of, of what he wrote. Jesus, be endless praise to thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, the free gift that gives righteousness and life to all men. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness to send a Savior into this world. Thank you that you've defeated both sin and death and that you have given us the righteousness of your Son at the great cost of becoming sin for us. Build your kingdom up by this way, this reign of grace, that we would receive well from you, appropriate it in our own lives, and seek to proclaim it to one another. Help us, Lord, to do this, we pray. For we ask it in the name of our second Adam, the great shepherd who pursues his lost sheep, Jesus the Christ. Amen.